0: everything that happens on what we would tradition- traditionally call Good Friday. Um, right around Easter, uh, you typically hear the message, a Sunday morning message that revolves around uh, the resurrection and these comp- these kind of events uh, on a Good Friday. Uh, a lot of times churches will uh, have specific services and they'll walk through this stuff. Our calendar didn't line up with this, so we're studying this uh, far after the events of Good Friday and Easter. But that's exactly, that's kind of what's happening. All this stuff is happening from the point of like really, really early on Friday morning, we're talking like maybe two or three in the morning morning up until the afternoon on Friday. All right. So that's, where, that's the, the timeline that we're covering. But this chapter specifically, this account is found in the other gospels, but this specific account for some reason includes a lot of detail about the specific characters in the events of the final hours of Jesus's life there are, there's, there's Judas, there's Pilate, there's the, the crowd, there's the soldiers. Um, and so in preparation for the message this Sunday, I couldn't shake the idea that there is something to be learned from all the characters in this story. Matthew arranges this Story, this narrative in a very specific way, and highlights the characters involved in it. And as you see and read through this, you you kind of it becomes apparent that like all of the characters surrounding the events of Jesus's um, arrest and. Uh, when he was beaten and then crucified. All of these specific characters, all of them have this agenda. Um, They have these motivations um, at the heart level that kind of manifest in some kind of action. What they're doing to Jesus is uh, comes from some kind of motivation on the inside. So all of these characters have these motivations but they also have these parts to play in this event because what God is doing is he's pushing the plan of redemption forward through the work of Christ. And he's using the evil, sinful decisions of mankind to make that work. And that is really important to understand. Because we as humans have this way of putting bad stuff in this box and good stuff in this box. And we want to we play around in this box. We kind of want to avoid this box. But the way that God works is he knows that that life is completely far more messy than that. And even though you have been redeemed, there is still a work going on inside of you and there are still uh, sinful motivations that, that manifest in your normal life that kind of help make a lot of the decisions of your daily life. It has nothing to do with what God wants. It still kind of has to do with what you want. And so what we're seeing in this chapter is God working through those sinful, dark decisions to bring his purposes about. And what it should do in us is make us praise him because it teaches us there is nothing out of his wheelhouse. God certainly can use the good stuff for his glory, but this chapter reminds us that God uses the darkest parts of the human heart to accomplish his purposes. And that's great news, because it means that the dark season you're going through right now has purpose. It means that the person who's been treating you the way that you have been treating you, are like, I just don't understand why they turn their back. Why is this person so vile? That that is not an event that is out of God's hands, that he can use that for his purposes to bring about our joy. It's kind of a wild concept. But if you can grab a hold of it, then you'll start seeing everything in your life differently. Then, then your life stops being this thing, well, I've just got to get out of this season. i just got to get through this. No, in the middle of that darkness, you start finding God's purposes and you start seeing his fingerprint on some of the, the, oh, the grossest stuff. God, you can use that. Oh, he can use that and much more. That's what this chapter teaches us. So as we're studying this chapter, I want us to examine the motivation and the parts that all these people are playing in God's work because these people have these agendas, but God uses these agendas and these actions to fulfill his plan. So today I want us to look at all of these possible motivations behind the characters. We're gonna read through and we're gonna examine the characters and we're gonna try and understand some of the motivations behind them. Some of them we don't know, it's um, our best guess. But through those motivations, we're also going to examine how God uses motivations for his purposes. But the third thing that I want us to do is I want us to hopefully learn from the mistakes of the people in this chapter. All right, so there was a kind of a principle, two main principles that I, I, growing up, I remember my dad always teaching me. That's my reference to to dad's Happy Father's Day. My dad, I always remember him telling me two things. He said, look, when you look out in the world, pretty much everything you see that was made with human hands was made by some human who had a brain just like yours. And the only thing separating you from being able to do the things that they did is enough time and enough education. What's separating you from this person being able to do this? And it was in the context of like changing the oil in your car, or changing the brakes. There are some things that just seem like, man, that's like magic. Like, I don't know how any of that stuff works, right? For some of you, that's like computers. You've got a person that you call when computers don't work, right? Or there's a person that you go to when things don't, they're just not functioning, right? But the principle my dad was trying to communicate is like, look, every, everything in the world is kind of structured. Like plumbing, a guy came up with that. Right, it's not that difficult. And most things in the world kind of function off of just like five or six simple principles and a lot of it revolves around like gravity. So it's not that complicated. What's complicated is the way that we kind of build it up in our minds, ah, that's far too difficult. No, it's not. You can learn to play the guitar. It's not that complicated. There's no magic to it. So that was one of the things that he taught me. But the other thing he taught me in the context of learning things from other people is that in your examination of other people, you, there, there is a lot to learn when you make mistakes. Making mistakes are a good thing in life because you can learn a lot from them. But in your examining of other people, it is far cheaper to learn from other people's mistakes. You can save a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of energy if you make a decision as a human being to start learning from other people's mistakes. Now, some people, it's just, that's in your DNA. You're just like, I can't do that. That's hot, don't touch it. This, that's you. And some of you are like, that's me. You got the scars to prove it. But there is a greater way, church. There is a way to be able to examine the lives of other people and say, that produced that result and therefore I should not also try that thing in my life because it will probably produce the same result. And that's what I want for us today. As we examine the characters from chapter 27, I want all of us to be able to see how God worked through their sinful choices and their motivations. But hopefully I want us to examine those motivations and those choices so that we also don't make those same mistakes. I want us to learn from those mistakes. So there are principles to be found in the mistakes that God in his mercy and his grace chooses to work through. We're all on the same page? Should be a fun ride, buckle up. Let's go to Matthew chapter 27. We're starting verse one and let's go through verse 10. It says, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Now when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, well, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And so he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and he departed and he went and he hanged himself. But the chief priests taking the pieces of silver, said, oh, it's, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. That's interesting because aren't they the ones who paid the blood money? Yes. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. And therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. And it was fulfilled what had been spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah saying, And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price on him, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me." So right there, pretty clear, you see God working through their decisions. They think that they're just going to do something righteous with the money, but what they're actually doing is fulfilling prophecy that Jeremiah spoke about. Now let's back up, because in this first 10 verses, we've got two main characters, all right? We've got Judas, and we've got the chief priests. That's a great band name, Judas and the chief priests, <laughs> right? Probably like a, like a folk ska band or something. <clears throat> but this group, now I'm, I'm lumping the chief priests into like one category, because they kind of all, they're just like a collective hive mind of dumb decisions. So you've got Judas and you've got the chief priests. And in this 10 chapters, you've got the stage set for these characters. It's taking place early Friday morning. The first two verses show us that even though they had already decided that they were going to put Jesus to death on Thursday night after he got arrested, the Jews could not make a decision. They could not put anyone to death unless they um, uh, had Roman approval. So they had to go get approval from Pilate the governor. So they were kind of formulating their argument. Okay, when we bring it before Rome, how are we gonna do this? And they bring him before Pilate the governor. But I want to zoom in real quick on Judas as our first character, because we see that the guy who first went to the chief priests and asked for an opportunity to get money to sell out Jesus, he is now experiencing some regrets or remorse. So what is the motivation behind Judas going back on his decision? Why is he going to seek some kind of redemption? Well, we don't know exactly what's going on. Some commentators say that one of the motivations behind Judas, besides just demonic activity, because we know from John that Satan entered him, and so there was demonic influence, but one of the other motivations may have been that Judas was, he had ties to kind of a zealot organization he was convinced that in following Jesus, Rome was going to be overthrown. And the the, quicker the, 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 more the the closer they got to Jerusalem, the more Jesus kept talking about dying and dying and dying and giving himself over, Judas is like, I don't think that this is how it's supposed to play out. You're supposed to be our king, and it's supposed to be our, our king in our way. And so one of the theories that was popular in the first century was that what Judas wanted was to force Jesus' hand. I'm going to go and sell him out. And then when they arrest him, then he'll have no option than to just like start calling down legions of angels and taking care of business. So I'm really doing Jesus a favor. We don't know if that's the main motivation, but we do know that some motivation behind what Judas decided caused some form of regret in here. And then he was motivated to go back to the chief priests and he confessed to the chief priests and he threw his money at them. And the chief priests could not remove this sin and this guilt, so Judas just removed himself from the picture. Now I talked about this concept in the fourth week of our uh, message series last year, Walking in Forgiveness, and it's rooted in this concept that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 7.10, and it's the comparison between worldly grief and godly grief. So what Judas is experiencing is grief, but Paul tells us that there's two kinds of grief in the world. There is worldly grief that is essentially regret, that is rooted in the past, it is rooted in yourself, it is rooted in this sense that I have done this horrible thing, and because of the things that I have done, it will now affect me the rest of my life. And Paul tells us that that way of thinking ultimately leads to death. And in Judas' case, it did. But there is another kind of grief that Paul talks about that leads to repentance. And that is a conviction kind of grief. And that grief, that sorrow, is the kind of grief and sorrow that doesn't drive us inwardly to ourselves to constantly complain and wallow and be upset and look back at the past and just be overwhelmed by our decisions. It's the kind of grief that drives us to Jesus, or to God, and saying, God, please fix this for me. Do you see the difference? What you're seeing here is the difference between regret and repentance. And that's the lesson for us. What Judas is experiencing is not repentance. There's no transformation that comes from it. It is simply regret. And regret is not the same as repentance. And I make that point not because we don't know it, but because a lot of us know it but refuse to live that way. A lot of you are living most of your life, you're even making decisions right now, rooted in a regret that you made when you were 19. Look, I'm here to tell you, you either believe that the cross has transforming, resurrecting power, and you let go and let him transform you, or you don't believe that any of this stuff works. Some of you are are paralyzed with this sense of regret because you made some decision as a parent that you felt like is is cascading down to your child who is now 35 years old and making their own choices but you're convinced that because of something you did now they're affected for the rest of your life look that may it may be possible there is also a possibility it may not be true but let's just say for the sake of argument that it is true are you saying that that one thing that you did 10 years ago is the exception to the rule that we find in this entire book? Jesus is hanging on the cross looking down at the people that spit on him and beat him and stripped him naked and he's saying to them, Lord, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Are you saying that the thing that you did is worse than that? Regret is something that the enemy loves peppering into your life because it's so subtle. Because it's this kind of thing that you can convince yourself you can move on from, but every now and then it rears this ugly head and it forces you to, to be paralyzed. You can't make these decisions because you look back, man, I just I wish I could have, maybe if I would have done, maybe if I could have, maybe if I, look, here's the truth. This is one of those hard to swallow pills. You can't go back. You can only go forward. The decisions are made. And so you either grab a hold of the wonderful, beautiful forgiveness that Jesus offers from on high. And you move forward in wonderful, redemptive power. Or you continue to live with worldly regret in the past. And Paul tells you what's going to happen. You're going to ultimately end in death. And not just physical death, spiritual death right now. You're gonna cut yourself off from the mercies of God because you're convinced that you are the exception to some rule and what you did is greater than the power of the cross. And that's one character. The other one here, the chief priest, and these are an interesting set of characters. I love these guys because we're told in verse one that in order to make decisions, they came together they, in, in a council. The people, uh, verse 1, the people took counsel against Jesus. And then we told again in verse 7 that in order to make a decision about what to do with the money, they took counsel. Now, Proverbs 15, 22, Proverbs eleven fourteen, 14, Proverbs 24, 6, it all tells us that there is, a, there is wisdom in the multitude of counselors. It is wise to get counsel. So in and of itself, what they're doing is smart. The problem is that their motivation for counsel is envy and greed and selfishness. And we find in verse 9 that their entire value system is off. They have Jesus, God in human flesh, standing before them. And verse 9 tells us they took 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set. So they've got God in front of them, and in their council they said, this is how much God is worth, 30 pieces of silver. So not only is this council motivated by the wrong things, their entire value system on how they rate the importance and value of things is completely skewed. So how do we learn from this experience? How do we learn from this terrible, uh, wicked collection of decisions from these guys? Well, it reminds us that yes, there is wisdom in the multitude of counselors, but you have to make sure that the counselors are not corrupt. Now, look, that seems like a no-brainer. It seems like a no-brainer to seek counsel from folks with the right motivation and the right value systems. The Problem is that we see seeking counsel as coming and sharing our thoughts with a couple few people and getting their feedback. But we ignore the fact that seeking counsel is also the way that we give ourselves to things like the media or social media or people that you follow online or videos that you subscribe to on YouTube or the way that you allow that big 75 inch screen in your living room to pump and disciple you with all of the worldly garbage that streams 24 7 into your living room are you following me that is a form of counsel i'm coming before a group that has a worldly a worldly mindset, a a secular worldview, and I am allowing these people to tell me how to think about specific things in the world when their value system doesn't reflect this, and their motivations are to sell me something. There's a reason why YouTube recommended that video to you Because it's been watching your heart's desire for conspiracy theories. And it knows you love a good conspiracy theory. And the people making those videos knows that they will get money, ad revenue, from Google if their recommendation has enough views to push forward their, so what they do is they make these, these, these clips of like, Man, some of the m- 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 wild, radical, it's just like the most God-awful expressions of people like shouting. It's like 10 things you'd never think you'd hear in this church. Well, I mean, I, I got to now. This person who you read and, you know, we, we watch some, you never believe what they said about this. And it feeds into this concept, the big one right now, UFOs. Man, everybody loves a good UFO, Right? Oh, everybody's content is just streaming with UFOs, aliens, who are they? Where are they coming from? What do they want? All these pilots keep seeing all these things, you know? It starts ramped up. You start clicking on this stuff, clicking on this stuff, and all of a sudden, you know what you're spending? Your time. You're giving your attention, you're giving your affection to the counsel of the internet whose motivation is to sell you something and whose value system is not our value system. And I'm telling you that in the same way these guys continued to make stupid decisions because the root of why those made they, these decisions wasn't ever addressed, we are at the peril of making the exact same decisions because we're not examining the agenda that the worldview of the kingdom of darkness wants to push on us. And here's the, here's the wild part about it. You're not gonna get a video on how to worship Satan. I guess maybe some of you will. Because like that's your that's man, I love studying the occult and all this weird stuff over here. But that's, that's not how the enemy is gonna pull your heart and stir your affections away from Jesus. He's gonna use the things that your heart has an inclination for some new technology or the way that some girl looks in a bathing suit. The stuff that he's going to pull your heart with, it's not full on, clearly that's demonic. No, it's stuff that seems on the surface harmless that he uses almost like a fisherman with a hook. It's just, he's just baiting you. And when you get hooked, all of a sudden, you know what happens? You don't turn to the kingdom of darkness immediately. You start telling yourself, no, no, I can hold on to this thing that is killing me like a cancer and also still go to church and worship and love Jesus. And the truth is that you cannot hold on to both things successfully. A man cannot serve two masters. And the moment you start giving your heart to the things of this world, whether it be financial, or political, or educational, or social justice minded, it doesn't matter what flavor that the kingdom of darkness wants to pull you towards, as long as it's away from Jesus. Because we have a kingdom that we're supposed to be preaching. But the world wants us preaching a different kingdom. And he wants us to use our resources and our social media to do it. And we are happy to, as long as there's something in it for us. All right, let's keep going. Verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor. And the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, well, you've said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. And Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. Now, that idea the the releasing of a prisoner is tied to this festival the passover the idea that there is going to be someone set free that should be guilty this is a common thing that happened every year and so pilate thinks okay i'm gonna maybe take advantage of this verse 16 and they had they had then a a notorious prisoner called barabbas so when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him saying, look, you got to have nothing to do with that, right, with that man. He is righteous. I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. So God is giving Pilate's wife dreams about Jesus and she's trying to give him counsel. Verse 20, now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. And the governor again said to them, well, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they all said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to him, well, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all shouted, Let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd saying, hey, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered his blood be on us and on our children. And then he released for them Barabbas and having scourged Jesus, delivered him over to be crucified. All right, let's look at two new characters. We've got Pilate and we've got Barabbas. Both of them are playing their role in God's redemptive plan, but both of them are teaching us important lessons too. God is working through uh, Pilate to accomplish God's plan of redemption for the world, but he's also working through Barabbas because this Look, we're literally seeing the gospel being preached. A man who is guilty is being set free because in his place is Jesus. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus, that he takes our place. So both of these actions are not just historical moments in history. They are God weaving this beautiful tapestry in order to communicate something huge. And he's doing it through the decisions of these guys. But let's look at Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor from AD 26 to 36. So he had this post for about 10 years. And while he was in that post, he made numerous mistakes that caused lots of Jewish uproar and and shed lots of Jewish blood. Uh, the first there were four big events. The first one was when he first showed up on the scene. he had these insigns um, uh, these these kind of like these uh, banners that he would uh, parade it into town with and all around his uh, um, uh, kind of uh, his fortress. And they had um, uh, Caesar's face on them. And it was highly offensive to the Jews because they were even surrounding the temple. And it cro- created a huge uproar to eventually where Pilate is like, all right, it's not worth it. So he takes it down. So that was kind of the, like the first riot crowd. The second thing that he did was he had these, um, like these votive shields made, this kind of decorative thing. Uh, and on it had another symbol of Rome. You'd think he'd learn his lesson the first time, but he didn't and that caused a huge uproar. Well, later on in his time there, he decided that the city needed an upgrade on its aqueducts. So he went into the temple treasury and he took money out of the temple treasury to pay for the aqueducts. Guess who was not happy about that? The Jews. They went nuts. They created an uproar. There was a riot. There was another riot after that, because there was was a misunderstanding about something that happened. Some some antiquities from the days of Moses had been found through some kind of uh, studies. And through that process, uh, there was a a claim that down in the center of town, that there was an uproar among the Jews. So he sent an entire battalion of uh, Jews uh, or of, of Roman soldiers down to the middle of it. And it created an uproar. And he ordered them to essentially massacre the Jews down in the middle of town. And so he killed a bunch of Jewish citizens right around the temple down in the middle of the city. So he did not have a good track record. And he was already on the borderline of being kicked out of this position. We know that later in his life after 36, when he gets kicked out, he actually gets exiled to some like foreign land. He doesn't get to rule anything because he was such a bad leader. So we see him at this moment and he's now faced with a screaming crowd. He's got four strikes against him and this silent prisoner who won't speak up. So out of fear of another uprising, he washes his hands in a in a, like a shallow attempt to say, I'm trying to distance myself from this. But in this moment, we see God using this weak leader to accomplish his plans. God is saying a lot of things through the actions of Pilate. The idea that humans love washing their hands in some symbolic way of saying, no, 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 I have no part in this when they had a huge part to play in it. But the thing that I think is most telling to us is the way that he makes this decision. He chooses to let the crowd have their way because he's afraid that if he doesn't, something bad will happen. And that is a huge principle for us. We, as people of faith, cannot make decisions rooted in fear. Now you see this a lot in parenting, you see this a lot in the business, and in the marketplace, you see this a lot in churches, and it goes like this. I have to make this decision. I don't like it, and it's not a great decision, but I have to make this decision because I'm afraid of what will happen if I don't. Guys, that is no way to parent. That is no way to run an organization. That is no way to be a part of a local church. We are people of faith. We don't know what's coming next, but we can confidently make the decision that is right according to the word of God rather than saying, I have to do this. I have to say this to my child. I've got to do this to them because I'm afraid that if I don't, this will happen. I have to do this within church because if I don't, I'm, I'm afraid of this happening. Look, fear is never a motivator for wise decisions. Now, God uses it, but it's not our default. That is not the place you should be going to when it's time to start making decisions. And you may be in a season right now where you're like, well, it's time for us to make some tough decisions. Let me encourage you. Do not be The kind of person who makes a decision with the sentence, I think we've got to do this, because if we don't, I'm afraid, dot, 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 dot. That's not who we are. That's not how we make decisions. Now let's look at Barabbas. He's an interesting character too, because in Hebrew, his name means son of the father. Bar, son, Abba, father. He's the son of the father. So we know that that's a last name, that's a descriptor. It's not his first name. Now if you go back into uh, the earliest first century writings, like there's a guy named Josephus who wrote a lot about first century Judaism. He actually calls out the fact that uh, Barabbas, his first name was Jesus. It was left out in a lot of the recordings because they did not want Jesus, Barabbas, being associated with Jesus of Nazareth. So his name was Barabbas they called him Barabbas, but his first name was Jesus. Jesus was actually a really common name. It was like, like John or Peter. J- like Jude, uh, uh, Jesus is a really super common name. And so in the first century, you've got, well, I- in this moment, you've got Pilate standing before this crowd saying, all right, guys, I've got a choice for you. Do you want Jesus Barabbas or do you want Jesus of Nazareth? Now for the crowd, Jesus Barabbas is a very attractive Jesus because, man, he's a Jesus. I'll take this Jesus over this Jesus. Why is this one more appealing? Because he doesn't require anything of me. He's not out here saying, follow me, take up your cross. He's not out here saying uh, the the gate is narrow. He's not out here saying you've got to die to yourself. No, he's, he's a zealot. He's one of these guys who wants to overthrow Rome. He wants to make decisions and fix things from the outside in. See, Jesus of Nazareth, he's convinced that the problem is in the heart level. And if you fix that, then things will start changing on the outside. Not Jesus Barabbas. Barabbas thinks that the issues are outside. The issues are the government. The issues are Rome. The issues are out here on external stuff. The issues are you and you and you. And if we get rid of you, then the issue will go away. And Jesus of Nazareth is saying, no, 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 the issue's not out there. The issue isn't here. The issue is you, it's you, it's you. You're the problem and I'm here to fix it. I can change you. I can raise you. I can make you new. Barabbas is like, no, 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 guys, follow me. And he looks like us, and he talks like us, and he's got the language, in, and and we like he's kind of a bad boy, and we 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 like that a little bit because there's something in us as far as Americans we like we like shaking our fist at stuff because we just like shaking our fist, and so this guy's attractive, and he was attracted to the crowd, and he's attractive today. These two sons of the father are not just presented to the crowd here, but they're still on a regular a regular. Repetition offered to us. Guys, choose your Jesus. And you can choose your Jesus by different churches. You can choose your Jesus uh, by not even going to church. Just stay at home and watch 19 different churches. Why? Because one Jesus is saying, look, the gate is as wide as you could possibly imagine. Anybody and everybody could go through. Nobody's telling you you can't. Yeah, of course you can. What about this baggage I've been carrying around? Nah, bring it with you. But the other Jesus is over here saying, no, no, you gotta leave that stuff behind. You gotta die to yourself. You can't take that. But it's little. It's a carry-on. No, no, I can't take that. See how narrow that gate is? You're not gonna fit with it. You gotta leave your baggage behind. If you wanna fit through this narrow gate, you gotta let that stuff go. You gotta die to yourself. You gotta me live through you. Oh, man, that seems like a lot. So I gotta tell myself, no, a lot? Yeah, that's pretty much all this is. That's not very attractive. You got another Jesus? You got a different Jesus I can follow? Yes, the world, weak, immature churches, there are lots of Jesuses for you to choose from, but there is only one who went to the cross and took your place and rose from the dead. Jesus Barabbas is not going to do that for you the Jesus that you have been told you can follow by going to church once a week. And that's the extent of your religious life. That Jesus didn't die for you. That Jesus says, have your own way right now. This is the best life you're possibly going to have. Choose, make all your choices now, follow your heart, do whatever you want right now. That's Jesus Barabbas. And that's the, that's the Jesus that the crowd loves. That's the Jesus that the church still loves. Because we don't like being told no. We don't like being told you have to die. We don't like being told you have to forgive. We don't like being told turn the other cheek. We don't like being told down is up and up is down. We don't like being told you wanna to be first, get to the back of the line. We don't like being told sit down and be quiet because you, you need to learn some, you, you, need to, you don't know as much as you think. We don't like that. We like reminding people how much we know and how much we've been around. We like following a guy who shakes his fist. But that's not our Jesus. Our guy is the one who gets on his knees and washes the feet of the people we can't stand. That's the guy we're getting behind. So today, there is no shortage of people preaching this Jesus or this Jesus. And it's up to us to make sure that we understand which Jesus we're following. Because you can get to the end of your life and stand before Jesus, the real Jesus, and be told, depart from me, I never knew you. All the while you're thinking, I spent my entire life following Jesus. Well, you followed a Jesus, but it was the wrong one. Let's go to verse 27. At this point, the soldiers, of the governor, took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling down before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, hey, King of the Jews, and they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. When they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. And as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by his name, and they uh, they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. This mixture was designed to essentially get him a little drunk so that he couldn't experience the pain. Jesus said, no, I'm not gonna take the easy way out. I'm gonna experience the pain because there's purpose in this. So he wouldn't drink that. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. And then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, you who could destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and then we will believe him. You trust in God. Let God deliver him now, if he desires him, for he said, I'm the son of God, and the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. This section draws our attention to two other characters, the soldiers and the crowds. And their actions, interestingly enough, are fulfilling scripture. God is using their mockery. He's using their beating their sinful choices to fulfill his purposes. Um, Isaiah 50, verse six, Isaiah 53, seven, Psalm 69, 21, Psalm 22, seven through eight, Psalm 22, 16, all filled with prophecy about what Jesus would go to. He would be abandoned, he would be mocked and spit upon, he would be stripped naked. All of their sinful decisions God is using, but their actions, that mode, that were motivated, their motivations that push these actions, they tell us a good lesson too. So you see these soldiers, they're spending a great deal of time mocking and abusing Jesus. They're saying, Hey, oh King of the Jews. They made a sign, this is Jesus, King of the Jews. What they don't understand is that God is going to use their confession against them. What they're saying is true. But they don't believe what they're saying. And ultimately, that will be used against them at the end of days. Because what is happening here is that those who are judging and punishing Jesus will eventually be judged and punished by Jesus. Those who take the seat of judge will ultimately find themselves on the other side of that seat being judged by Jesus. And this is true for us today because we make judgments every single day on all kinds of things. We make judgments on people's actions. We make judges on people's motivations. We make judgments about people's uh, uh, things that we see, about what they buy and the way they choose to live. We even make judgments about ourselves. And the thing to remember is that we will one day be judged for the way we are now currently judging others. Look, you. When I started off and I talked about the importance of us being a vibrant community and being the kind of people who are connected to one another and involve each other's lives. One of the things that you're going to have to fight constantly is the judgment that will rise up in your heart against the actions that you see in someone else. But what you can't see is the heart motivations behind those actions. Now, sometimes those heart motivations are wicked because we're a people being redeemed, but sometimes, those actions, they come from a mo- motivation that you just, you don't understand. So you see somebody make a decision or do something you're like, man, and you go to the worst possible place first and you start casting judgment on them. Is that the way you would want someone to think about you? Because the judgment that you're using to communicate and to think and to live in community with everybody else, One day you will be sitting in a place where you will be judged for how you judge others. Every idle word that we speak will be weighed against us at the end of time. Everything you say and everything you do, husbands, every word you say to just kind of drive home your point to put your wife in her place Wives that Solomon would describe in Proverbs as like a dripping faucet, all you do is just drip and drip and complain and ride your husband and get on his nerves and complain and compare him against some other guy. Those thoughts will be used against you one day. And so my plea for us today is if we know that, then we should start making a conscious choice to start living with far more grace because, buddy, we're gonna need that grace one day when we sit before the judge. Amen? Now, the other one here is the spectators. They spend a great deal of time asking Jesus to prove himself. Hey, if you're the Christ, do this or do that. If you're the Christ, prove it in this way. He just spent three years demonstrating who he was and that he was good enough and that he was who he says he was, but they're setting up their own test. It's essentially like them saying, look, we want you to prove that you are faithful by passing our test. We know that you have have done your things, but we're gonna set up our own litmus test to judge whether you are faithful, and we want you to pass our test. This is kind of like how our prayer life looks like sometimes. Lord, I need you to prove yourself in this specific way, because I am too lazy to trace all the other ways you have already been faithful. Lord, if you really love me, You'll come through in this specific way. I don't want to rest on how you have already been faithful. I want you to prove yourself in this specific way to me. Here's the funny thing about living by faith. A lot of people think that living by faith is this, well, is this blind faith. You just kind of just trust and you go. That's not what living by faith is. Living by faith is trusting what you cannot see because you are relying on the things you have seen. And that's the crazy thing about faith. God is not just saying, look, I know I've never done anything before. I know I have no record of me coming through for my people. You're just gonna have to trust me on this. No, he's got a solid 4,000 years plus of solid coming through and faithfulness. And what he's saying is, I want you to trust me in this thing right now because you've seen me come through in all of these other ways. That's faith. It is a trusting resting on the reality that he has already done this numerous times and he does not need to pass your test to prove himself. And that's what we're learning from these guys. That the mockery of the crowd, they're, they're vocalizing our posture. God, prove yourself in this specific way. And he's saying, I've already proved myself in all of these ways. And what I want is for you to just trust me because this is true. God does not need to take our tests to prove himself. Now let's read the last little chunk here, forty-five and fifty-five to fifty-four, and then just want to focus on this last main character, Jesus. Now, from the sixth hour there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour, and about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, "Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani," which is the translation, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" But some of the bystanders heard it, saying, "Ah, oh, this guy's calling out for Elijah." Well, he wasn't. This man is calling out for Elijah, verse 48, and one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and tried to give it to him to drink. But the other said, no, 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 late, let's wait. Let's see if Elijah will come to save him. At that point, verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised up and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion of those who were with him, when, excuse me, when the, when the centurion and those who were with him keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, "Truly." This was the son of God. So let's zero in on this main character, Jesus. He endured betrayal, lies, mocking, beating, humiliation, torture. What was his motivation? How could he endure some of the worst treatment that a human could go through? Well, it was twofold. One, he did it because it was obedience to the father. He wanted this cup to pass but he drank it anyway, this cup of suffering, because the Father willed it, because it was the way of salvation. But the other thing that allowed him to move through it is because the end goal of the suffering was redemption. The other side of this pain was people. He got us back. And that's the joy. So in the middle of the suffering, he's not fixing on the pain and the suffering. He's looking beyond what's coming after it. And it gave him the ability to be able to move through that suffering and pain because his eyes were fixed on something greater, which is after the suffering. This is our takeaway. That endurance is possible if we can find the way to look beyond the suffering. This is what Paul is telling us in Romans 5, 3 through 11. I wanna read it real quick just for a refresher. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved through his life. And More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord, Je- Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation." Look, you can endure anything if you understand the principle that on the other side of the suffering and the pain is more Jesus and resurrection power. If I told you that the pain that you're going through right now will provide a way for you to be, for the capacity that you have for Jesus to grow, for your understanding of God's kingdom, for your ability to be able to walk in that would be even greater, would you do it? Somebody's like, yeah, of course I'd do it. But here's, can you do it without complaining? Can you endure the suffering that is not on the scale of what he suffered, but can you endure any darkness or valley coming your way? If you choose to fix your eyes beyond it, the answer is yes. How did Jesus endure? because he knew that on the other side of it was resurrection power. And there was a, just a small shadow of this. We see the tombs being opened, we see the veil being ripped. The veil is this huge curtain that sits in the Holy of Holies that separates people from the, Holies, the Holy of Holies, the, the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence. When, God, when Jesus died, that veil was ripped in half. So what's happening is when Jesus makes the sacrifice, We have access to God and tombs are open because resurrection power is gonna start bursting forth everywhere. That's what happens. That's why he was able to endure because on the other side of the pain came closer relationship with God and resurrection power. Now, here's how I wanna finish. Verse 54. We've covered a lot of characters today. We've covered a lot of mistakes, but there's one final one I want us to try to avoid. Verse 54, it says, when the centurion and those who were with him kept watch over Jesus, they saw the earthquake and what took place and immediately at that point, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this, this was the Son of God. My plea for us today is for us to not make this mistake. That we are not filled with awe and our lips confess that this was the Son of God after the earthquake takes place. That we're not waiting for those monumental, huge, no brainer moments before we say that is Jesus. And our hearts are filled with awe. Do not Wait for God to shake the earth before you are filled with awe and wonder. Do not let your confession of Jesus be predicated on the idea that you have to go through some life-threatening moment. Do not wait for a diagnosis that you have an expiration date coming in your future before you take your relationship with Jesus seriously. Do not wait until you hit the point in your life where you think, okay, now I'm older and I can start taking things more seriously before you start taking him more seriously. Do not wait for your marriage to fall apart or for your children to reject him before you start taking your faith seriously. When that happens, it's too late. My greatest fear as a pastor is that I shepherd people who spend their entire life plotting and, str- and strategizing and organizing and trying to find the best way that they could suck the most out of life, but ignore the principle of treasuring Jesus above everything else. That week after week, I can pour myself into these messages and I can stand up here and say, look, this is what's most important. This is what's most treasured. And you hear it and you say, mm-hmm, you're right. And then you leave this place and you give your heart to the world. And you give your heart to your hobbies and you give your heart to your job. You give your heart to your family. That the Lord never gets the best of you. That the Lord never gets, you, the Lord never, you, you never empty yourself out of him. You never come before him and plead and say, I'm, I'm empty, fill me. Nothing in this world fills me like you fill me. Better is one day in your course than a thousand days anywhere uh, elsewhere. No, my, my, my greatest fear is that I will shepherd people who will, who will mm hmm, that's right, that's right. But when it's time to leave this place, you spend the other six days treasuring everything this world has to offer because Jesus is only important for two hours on Sunday. Look, that will affect your marriage. That will affect your business. That will affect your children. It will affect your wife, It'll affect your husband, affects your spouse, It'll affect your grandkids. You treasuring the, the wrong thing. It has generational consequences. And it erodes the credibility of the church as a whole, because when the world knows you go there, but talk like that, I don't want any part of your Jesus. This is my greatest fear, that like these soldiers, you will either be outwardly mocking or inwardly mocking because of your affections are being stirred by this world. But a day is coming when everything falls apart and you hit rock bottom and it's at that point when you start to make a change. Look. It's never too late to turn. And hitting rock bottom, for some folks, that's great. But for, hitting, look, for some folks, look, hitting rock bottom, there's no turning back. And being told you've got a month to live, wouldn't you rather have spent your entire life treasuring the right thing than your final month treasuring that? Do you really wanna, do you really wanna get in by the skin of your teeth? Look in the kingdom of heaven, here's some bad news, but in the kingdom of heaven, some folks who have had it all in this world and love Jesus from a distance will be taking out your trash in the next kingdom. That's how this works because everyone will be judged based on what they did. And there are some folks who truly they love, they redeem, they, they love Jesus, but, but they spent their entire life just kind of playing this game from, from, from a distance. Now, I'm trying as, as graceful as I can say that, yeah, you're going to get in by the skin of your teeth. But there is, there is a real possibility that some of them won't. I, I don't know how that's going to pan out. I know that if you love Jesus and he's forgiven your sins, then you're going to spend eternity in heaven. But I don't know what your heaven experience is going to look like if you spent your entire life playing games. If you spent your entire life playing games, you may not even go to heaven, even though you spent your entire life going to church. That's how real this is. There are a a trillion things in this world that want your affection and your money, but there is one thing that is a treasure buried in the field that is worth selling everything for. And if there's one thing I could plead with you today, it's this, do not be the Roman soldier who needs an earthquake for a wake up call. Get on your knees and ask Jesus to break you today. That is the best gift that you could give your kids as a father. Let's pray.